All right, we, um, we are in the second week of a series on the most influential and famous sermon ever given, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And so if you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have one, there should be one in the seat back in front of you. You can grab it. Um, last week, we had this opportunity to just steep ourselves in the entire sermon. We, we got a chance to hear it from beginning to end, potentially how, how Jesus presented it. Um, today we are going to begin a process of walking step by step through the Sermon on the Mount, and that will actually take us all the way through to the end of the year because there is so much richness in here. It's kind of like a, a really good steak. We're just going to kind of chew on a piece each week. But uh, before we do, I want to give you just briefly a little bit of context so we can understand what's going on when Jesus begins to speak. Because Jesus has just begun his public ministry. He's, he's already started to gather a following because as he's teaching in different places, his teaching, he, he doesn't teach as the, the Pharisees and the other teachers of the law do during his time. He's not just quoting other rabbis that have come before. He's teaching with authority and he's helping people recognize something radically different about the, the God's word and about the kingdom of God that they never got when they just focused on the law. But not only does he teach with authority, but he's been backing up his words with miracles. People have been healed. Blind have been made uh, able to see. People's bellies have been filled miraculously. And word is out that there's something unique about this rabbi, Jesus. And so people begin to flock from all over the Galilean region to hear him. Now, some of them are there because they want to discredit him as a charlatan. Others are there because they're hoping that he might be the Messiah that they've been waiting centuries for, that, that God's anointed redeemer that will reestablish Israel as the preeminent nation and throw off the yoke of Rome. There are probably the majority of the people, though, in that audience that day who are there because they are hoping that Jesus will do for them what he's done for so many other people, that he, that he will heal them, that he will take care of the brokenness that they feel inside. And as Jesus looks out on these gathered masses, most of whom were probably the also-rans and the, the, the ones that would not be considered great in the kingdom of the world, Jesus looks at this as an opportunity to share with them about the kingdom of God. Now, as we read this, we're going to realize that there's a, the kingdom of heaven is the term Matthew uses. Kingdom of God is used throughout the rest of the Gospels. Those two terms are interchangeable. They mean exactly the same thing. It's just that when Matthew was writing his Gospel, he was writing to a bunch of Jews. They, they were his primary audience. And Jews have this thing about God's name. They do not want to desecrate it. They do not want to cheapen it. And when you write his name down in ink, they felt that it cheapened his name. So rather than saying the kingdom of God, which could be disrespectful to his audience, they decided, Matthew decides, I'm going to call it the kingdom of heaven. It means the same thing. Of course, this begs the question, well, what is the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven? And how is that different from the rest of the world that we know? In order to answer that question, I want to back up one step further and ask the question, well, what is a kingdom at all? When we say the word kingdom, what do we mean? And so I'll, I'll lean on somebody who's a lot smarter than me, a guy named Dallas Willard, who's a, who was a professor up at USC. He wrote a book called The Divine Conspiracy in which he explains what a kingdom is. Can we throw that quote up there? It says, the kingdom is anywhere that the sovereign's will is done. 
A kingdom is wherever the king or the queen can say, this is what I want to happen, and their will is carried out faithfully. So, for instance, if a king says, you know, teal is my favorite color, so I, I decree that every home in my kingdom must be painted teal, and which Pantone would that be? You know, and he tells him which color it is. I didn't know that Pantone was a thing until I do now. So, and you would get a really good idea of the, the boundary of that king or queen's kingdom based upon where the teal houses stop and the pink and the blue and the green and the yellow and the brick-colored houses begin. Make sense? So the kingdom of heaven is wherever... I'm sorry, the kingdom is wherever the sovereign's will is done and therefore the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is wherever God's will is done. And likewise, citizens of the kingdom of God are anybody who willingly submits themselves to following God's lead and doing his will. There's lots of people who may feel compelled to do something because they're forced to. Slaves don't have an option. They must do it or they, are, they will be punished. But a citizen chooses to submit because they want to. Okay. So if that's what a kingdom is, Jesus now says, I want to describe for you. He he uses the very first moments of his Sermon on the Mount, which is very, very long and in-depth on a lot of different things, and he uses the very first moments to illustrate the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world that everybody's used to, to show how radically different the values are. So let's go ahead and take a look at these first few verses. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're going to go a little bit further a little later, but let's pause there for a moment. Because my guess is, although we may be familiar with this, it might feel a little odd the things that he's saying are blessed. And I can guarantee you that to the people he was speaking to that day, this would have sounded asinine. What are you talking about? Blessed are are the poor in spirit. Jesus, do you mean to tell me that we should consider blessed those individuals who know that they don't have a single thing they can point to in their lives to try to tell God, this is why I I should matter to you and why you should want relationship with me. You mean that we should consider blessed those who are spiritually bankrupt? Really? That's ridiculous. Because we know, just look at society, look at, look at how the world works. It's not the spiritually bankrupt that should be considered blessed, it's the spiritually elite. People like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, they're blessed. I mean, they're the ones that seem to have the bat line to God. Anytime they throw up a prayer, we think God hears them better, so we take our prayers to them so they'll pray for us. It's those guys who are considered blessed when they come into the, the, the public square or the temple courts. They are treated with deference because they're holy people. 
They're the ones who are blessed. The spiritually impoverished. What are you talking about? But Jesus recognizes that it's actually the spiritually impoverished that are going to be able to take hold of what he's offering. It's not that it's not available to everybody. It's just that they're the ones who will take hold of it because history shows us. And if you're, if you're familiar with the Gospels, we'll begin to see that it was actually the spiritually elite, the ones who should have known and grabbed hold of the kingdom of God. They were the ones who were most resistant to it. And when this, this good news of grace that you can be saved because of God's grace rather than our good efforts began to be publicly shared, it was those spiritually elite that were most resistant to it because they didn't feel like they needed grace. The foundation of their faith was their works. I'm a good person. I don't need that. And so they rejected Jesus and they rejected the message of grace. But it was the spiritually impoverished the, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the attorneys, sorry, Dad, um, <laughs> the sinners of every stripe that ultimately grabbed hold of it like a drowning man grabs hold of, of a life ring. Because this is, this is available to me. Well, yeah, I want it. I don't deserve it, but I want it. And so blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Uh, Okay, but how about the next one? Blessed are those who mourn. Seriously, Jesus? Anybody who has reason to mourn should not feel blessed. But understand this. Jesus is not working off of the way that the world works, where we tend to look at our circumstances and determine whether or not we're blessed based upon how we are doing, how much money is in the bank, how if we're sick or not. He is looking at the fact that the kingdom of God has already infiltrated the world. People are already beginning to do God's will on earth as it is in heaven. He inaugurated it because he came to lead in that department. He said, I'm going to do only what I see the Father doing. And I'm going to invite others to do the same. So the kingdom of heaven is already present, but it has not yet been fulfilled. God's will is not perfectly done here on earth as it is in heaven. And so, we live in a world where a a lone gunman with a grudge can radically alter the course of countless people's lives. We live in a world where hurricanes and fires can consume homes, where cancer and depression can consume bodies where death can consume lives. And you better believe that there is reason to mourn. But for those of us who recognize that this world is not all there is, this is just a momentary blip in the perspective of eternity, well then suddenly our uncomfortable circumstances in the moment, and I do not mean to make light of them, but our momentary circumstances take on a new light because we have hope. We have hope that regardless of the brokenness, I mean, Jesus warned his disciples, listen guys, in this world you will have trouble. Your bodies will break down. 
You will experience persecution. You will have trouble, but you can take heart in the fact that I have overcome the world because of what I, they didn't realize this at the time, but what I'm going to do on the cross, I've overcome the world. So the brokenness of this life doesn't get the last word. The brokenness of your circumstances don't get the last word. So when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. He's not saying that we just disregard the junk that we walk through in our lives or that we don't grieve with those who grieve. There's lots of reasons to grieve. But we don't grieve as those who have no hope. Because whether in this life or the life to come, the brokenness of this world doesn't get the last word. So blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the world. I bet there were probably some snickers in the audience when he said that one. The meek, Jesus, did I hear you correctly in that one? Because we live, we live in the real world. And in the real world, the meek get crushed. In the real world, it's people with power, people who are connected. It's the tyrannical despots. Those are the ones, the ones who have an army behind them. Those are the ones who inherit the earth. And it's the meek who get crushed under the heels of those who are willing to use any ability, any power, any influence they have to push others down in order to build their kingdoms on the back of other people. And Jesus would say, you know what? That might be the world's economy. That might be how the world that you have experienced and grown up in works. But in God's kingdom, we don't simply use power to control the weak. In God's kingdom, we choose to love people the way we would want them to love us. We choose to put people's needs on par with our own needs. And we love people the way that we love ourselves. Jesus would go one step further later on when he's talking to his disciples. He'd say, in the same way that I have loved you, sacrificially, humbly, so you should love other people. It's a very different posture than the world takes. And I I want to point out the fact that you should not mistakenly convolute the word meekness with weakness. Those are not synonymous terms. Because the weak cannot help but submit themselves to other people who are more powerful than them. The meek. Meek simply means strength under control. Think of a, a horse that has learned to stand still when its rider comes over. It could easily buck the rider off. Even somebody like Byron, who has hands of steel and can break rocks with his grip. That man can be thrown off a horse, no problem, because the horse is way stronger than him. But that horse chooses to submit to him. Weakness cannot do anything other than submit. The meek choose to submit. And in God's kingdom, Jesus said, Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Do for others what you would have them do for you. As I have loved you, so you should love one another. So blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Why? Because ultimately, although the tyrannical despots may have control over this kingdom here and now, we look forward to the day when God will return and take full possession of what rightfully belongs to him. And when that happens... We who are his sons and daughters will inherit what we have coming from. So blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, the Pharisees in the crowd, the teachers of the law, might not have balked at that statement because everybody wants to be filled. But the way that they would go about trying to be filled is very different from how Jesus would recommend it. Because they would say the way we are filled is by doing good works, by being a good person, by striving and trying harder than the person next to you. And Jesus would say, there is absolutely nothing you can do to be declared righteous in God's sight. All of our attempts are like refuse, like garbage. He he uses a term that's even much uh, more grotesque. I'm not going to use it here. I don't think it's appropriate in church. And yet, that's the terminology he uses. It's useless to try to make yourself worthy to be declared righteous in God's sight. And yet we hunger for it. We want to be in right standing with our Father. We want uh, to be able to stand before God and not cower. And when you hunger and thirst for something long enough, typically... What do you do? You go to the source where you can get filled. If my kids are hungry, they go to mom. Not me, because I'm typically the one who has already eaten all of the snacks that they want. They go to mom because she's hidden extra snacks that dad doesn't know about. You go to the source. When you're thirsty, You don't sit there and go, boy, I'd like some water. This morning I realized my throat was a little dry. I go, man, I'd like some water. I went to Kathy. I knew she had some in her purse. Thank you, baby. Got me covered. And you go to a drinking fountain. And in the same way, when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you go to the source where your hunger can be fulfilled. Namely, Jesus. Come, all you who are thirsty, and I will give you Drink. Come to me, all you who are, who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus constantly said, when you come to the point where you are hungering and thirsting for your circumstances and, and, and the, the way that you've been approaching life to cease and you need to be filled up, come to me. I got you covered. But you need to get to the point where you are hungering and thirsting. And unfortunately for the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law, they didn't get to that point. Because they felt like they were righteous in and of themselves. So blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. We having fun yet? I'm having fun. (laughs) This is like drinking from the fire hose, but I've been, oh, this is so good. And and for our first through fifth graders who are hanging with us since it's family Sunday, I'm so glad that you're here. I'm so proud of you for sitting still. (laughs) I'm having a hard time right now. I'm just moving around. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Jesus, that's ridiculous. That's not how the world works. Rome doesn't show mercy. The the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they don't show mercy because in, in this world, mercy doesn't control people. Fear controls people. Therefore, you make sure people are afraid of you and they will do what you tell them to do. A heavy hand, that's what motivates people. But Jesus is like, no, God's not interested in controlling people. I know that some of you probably feel like he is. That's how he's been presented. And I'm sorry for the way that we have misinterpreted our Father's heart. He's not interested in controlling people. He longs for reconciliation of relationship between us and him 
and us and one another. If you read through the Sermon on the Mount, if you read through the New Testament, you get this this sense that God is all about, just come home, let me take care of you. One of the most powerful illustrations Jesus gives is this story of the prodigal son who's run far from home and basically told his dad, I wish you were dead. And this father who represents God's heart, when he sees his son making that long walk of shame home, covered in the muck of the pigsty that he's fallen into, which for any self-respecting Jewish boy was probably about as low as you could go. And when his, when his father sees him, and remember, this father represents our father in heaven, he doesn't stand on the porch with his arms crossed watching his boy make that long walk of shame. He hitches up his robes in a most undignified manner, and he runs to his boy. And when he gets there, he doesn't even let his son start on his I screwed up speech. He throws his arm around his stinky, sweaty son, and he says, I'm so glad you're home. And then he throws a party. And Jesus said, that's how much your father loves you. He is about reconciliation, not about simply controlling. What were we talking about? Ah, mercy. <laughs> Look, shiny object. <laughs> so blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God modeled it. By sending Jesus. We couldn't have earned our standing with God. He said, you don't need to. Let me clean you up. Come as you are. And I will give you rest. I will clean you up. I will not only redeem you, but I'll turn you around and send you back to be my representative. We'll get to that in just a little bit. Number, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. You know, for the Pharisees, their approach to life was all about the external. It's how you look. It's how you act. It's whether or not you are religious enough. You do the right things. You check the right boxes. You pray the right way. You dress the right way. It's all about how people perceive you. And so they went out of their way to try to help the people of Israel live a much more religiously, externally healthy, holy life. They took the 613 laws that you find in the the Old Testament and they said that's not enough because if anybody breaks even one of those, that's going to hinder us from having God send his Messiah. So here's what we're going to do. We are going to grab lots more rules and laws. We're going to come up with way more thou shalt not and we're going to start using them to build fences around the law, kind of like you parents who have a pool in your backyard and you got little ones, and you put a fence around the pool to make sure that your kids don't slip in and fall in and drown while you're not looking. Great heart. The Pharisees did the same thing. Let's use these extra rules, thousands of them, and let's build fences around the laws that we already have so that the people of Israel will not stumble into sin. Great desire. Horrifically awful approach. Because the reality is, I don't know about you, But in my life, anytime I'm told, do not do this, that's exactly what I want to do, right? And I tell that to my kids, don't do this. Well, what do you think? All of a sudden they start going, well, why can't I do that? I kind of want to do that. Actually, I've been wanting to do that all day. Gosh, why won't you let me do that? Rules don't make us more holy. Rules show us just how unholy we really are. And so Jesus would look at the Pharisees. And he saved his most powerful denunciation for them. 
He said, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites, a bunch of mask wearers. You go through life polishing the outside of the cup, and on the inside, it's full of of mold and filth. You guys are like tombs that have been whitewashed, painted white. They gleam in the sun. They're beautiful. And on the inside, they're full of rotten corpses. And then he turns around and he says, not so with you. In the kingdom of God, it is not about the external. That's secondary. It's about the heart. Because if you begin to clean the inside of the cup, the outside gets cleaned as well. That's my philosophy when it comes to doing dishes, which is why my wife typically comes behind me after I've tried to do the dishes. You clean the inside of the cup, the outside gets cleaned as well. If you work on the heart, then the external gets addressed as well. And so Jesus spent all of his time focused on the heart. The rest of the Sermon on the Mount is him going back to the very laws that the Pharisees made about external action. And he begins to unpack them and say, Look, let me show you the real heart underneath this. Let me help you understand what this is really getting at. And he strips away the religious veneer so that we can actually begin to see, oh, God's actually after my heart, not just about me doing the right things with a heart that is resistant and resentful. Make sense? We've got to keep moving. My goodness. All right. So blessed are the pure in heart because when we are, when we allow God to begin to purify our heart and work on us, all of a sudden we can begin to see the ways he's working all around us. I love it when we say, hey, we're bringing Jesus to Tijuana. I'm sorry. He's already there. Hey, we're going to Costa Rica. We're going to bring Christ to Costa Rica. He's already there and he's working. We just get to go and join him. And when you begin to allow God to work on your heart, you get to see that he is busy and active in our city all over the place. It's not like we are introducing Jesus to our city. We just get to join him in what our father is already doing here. Make sense? Okay, cool. All right. Verse nine. Blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. Now, this one probably would have spoken directly to a few people in that audience there that day who were hoping that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. They'd heard, this guy's healing people. He's driving out demons. He's feeding people. He's doing some crazy stuff, and he's teaching with authority. We think he might be the Messiah, God's anointed Redeemer. And so they had come expecting to see a conquering king. They'd come with their knives sharpened. You've got these zealots that are there and they've got their knives ready to take the fight to Rome, ready to kick some booty in the name of Jesus or whomever the Messiah happens to be. Let's do it. Let's do this for God. And Jesus is saying, you've got this completely wrong. Yeah, I might be the Messiah, God's anointed redeemer, but I have not come to redeem Israel from the oppressive regime that happens to be sitting over it, and I have not come to do it at the edge of a sword spilling our enemy's blood. Instead, I have come to redeem all of mankind, not just Israel. They may be the first fruits, but I have come to redeem every man, woman, and child who has been made in God's image. And I'm not going to do it by spilling our enemy's blood. I'm going to be doing it by spilling my own. I am going to make peace between God and man, between the creation and their creator. And I'm going to do it by sacrificing myself so that they can live in relationship that God created them to live in. I am going to be a peacemaker. I want to make peace between them. And now you, 
if you choose to be a part of the kingdom of God, you can join me in this by making peace with your neighbors, with your family members, with your co-workers, with students at school. Because blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called sons and daughters of the living God. Verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Jesus, what are you talking about? All the other ones we can forgive, but, but we should feel blessed when people mock us and write us off as superstitious and small-minded because we believe in God. We should feel blessed. We should feel blessed when we turn the other cheek and we forgive and we love somebody. And the moment we turn around, they stab us in the back again. We should feel blessed then. You're saying that people, Christ followers in Arab countries should feel blessed when because of their faith in Jesus and their their unwillingness to renounce him, they are disowned, beaten, and in many cases murdered. They should feel blessed. And I have to say, if only in this world, if this is all we have to look forward to is the circumstances of our life, and the moment we die, that's it, then absolutely not. In no way should we feel blessed then. And the things that are done to people in this world are grounds for grief and mourning, not for joy. And at the same time, if we recognize, as Jesus recognizes, that this life is not all there is. In many ways, it's like going into Disneyland and you pass through the gates and you know that courtyard in there where you have like the Mickey Mouse made out of flowers and you can see the train and there's a tunnel on either side. Anybody with me? Okay. That's this life. And we get into the courtyard and go, I've arrived. This is so cool. Let me take a picture with Mickey. Oh, there's Donald. You know, and we're so excited. And we think that this is all there is. And then we stub our toe or we see a piece of trash. And we go, oh man, this stinks. This doesn't live up to my expectations. And the docents are like, hold on a second. You, are, you don't realize this isn't Disneyland. This is just the entryway to it. Go through the tunnel. You have no idea what you're missing. When we begin to recognize that this life is just the entrance into... I don't want to call heaven Disneyland. That's terrible. <laughs> You get my point, right? It's like there's so much more than what we see right now. So don't get stuck on this. Yes, this life sucks. We live in a broken, fallen world where our bodies break down, relationships break down. And doggone it, the world doesn't work the way that God intended for it to work because it's been broken. And I'm so grateful for the hope that the brokenness of this world doesn't get the last word. And so if in this life we suffer because we love Jesus and we are not willing to bend a knee and renounce him, even though our friends mock us or our co-workers don't understand it or, you know, society pushes back against those closed-minded people who need religion like a crutch, blessed are them which is really good grammar. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. This is not our world. We are ambassadors, aliens, and strangers living in a world that does not bend a knee to Jesus Christ. But we get to live as his ambassadors, shining light into the darkness. Now, 
We read this and we can begin to strip away some of the, the, the stuff and begin to go, oh, okay, I can see a little bit how this makes sense. But I guarantee you to the vast majority, probably all of the people in the audience, including Jesus' disciples that day, they were lost. They're going, this makes no sense at all because this does not jive with how we experience life in the real world. Jesus, I'm confused. In a lot of ways, what you've just described as the kingdom of heaven seems completely upside down from how the real world works. I used to have the same perspective. Back when I was a kid, I I looked at my, my parents' faith and I looked at Christianity as is this kind of closed religious system full of rules and thou shalt nots. And I had the approach, you know, don't drink, don't smoke, don't lie, don't chew, and don't hang around with girls that do something like that, right? That was basically anything that's fun is off limits. If you're a Christ follower, you're supposed to be vanilla in a world full of 31 other flavors that are all way more delicious. But don't even think of ordering that, because that's a sin. And then when I was a sophomore in college, I moved out of my parents' house, moved into my fraternity house, which is a great next step out of your parents' house, right? And, and I began to see firsthand the freedom that I'd always longed for. Now they're no longer telling me what I have to do. Hi, Mom. Hi, Dad. Awkward. Um, I'm no longer under their rules. I'm no longer under their roof. I can live any way that I want. What's more, I'm surrounded by a bunch of guys who know how to grab life by the horns and ride it for all it's worth. And so I'm surrounded with people who are drinking deeply of all that the world offers as freedom. And here's what I found. What the world says is freedom. Tastes pretty sweet in the moment, but it is a rancid fruit that turns your stomach very, very quickly. And I can't tell you how much shame and and brokenness and and disappointment, the carnage that kind of followed. And there's a guy named um, Malcolm Muggeridge, which is a great name for a comic strip, but not for a real person. Um, There's this guy, Malcolm Muggeridge, who's a, a British journalist who was an atheist through much of his life. It was only when he got into his later years that he actually kind of gave his heart to Jesus and began to view life from a different perspective. And he came to a very similar perspective. I just want to share with you what he arrived at. He said, when I look back on my life nowadays, what strikes me most forcibly about it is that what seemed at the time most significant and seductive seems now most futile and absurd. For instance, Success in all of its various guises, being known and praised, ostensible pleasures like acquiring money or seducing women, experiencing whatever vanity fair has to offer. In retrospect, all of these exercises in self-gratification seem pure fantasy, or what Pascal called licking the earth. Now there is a fitting metaphor if I have ever heard one. Licking the earth. Hey, you're free to live any way that you want. But do you want to? Right? You can run after the things, uh, run after things that the world says, these, these are what you should celebrate. And when you do, do they satisfy you? And I've found that really it's only in following Jesus that I have experienced real freedom. 
from the very things that the world would say bring you freedom, they actually end up enslaving you. We see the amount of addiction. We see the amount of brokenness. My wife is a marriage and family therapist. She doesn't tell me stories, but I know that she sees the carnage of choices that people have made that have inflicted wounds on the hearts of people that they should have been faithful to. We've all experienced this. Are we really free? And it has only been in following Jesus and beginning to taste and see that he can lead us into the pathways where we can find life that is truly life, that we begin to find freedom. And so we have to make a choice because we live in a world that says this is freedom. And then we're presented with a different path that said, follow me and I will help you to be free because we've turned this world into a place where we bite and we scratch and we kick to try to push other people down in order to build our own little kingdoms on the back of them. And where we see people who have treated us, used power to abuse it, to get their way over and against what we want. And we say, never again. Never will that happen to me again. And so we begin to say, I won't be in that position again. So we then try to pull other people down to ensure that at the end of the day, we don't wind up on the bottom of the pile. And here, here's what I've learned What is that? Mom, seriously, silence your phone. Dag, nab it. We'll wait. It's all right. Now go ahead. Nobody's paying any attention. Just kidding. Kind of. So here's what it all boils down to. If we were to take that section that we've just looked at in the Sermon on the Mount and boil it down to one thing, the thing that stands out most clearly to me is this. The kingdom of God is not inverted. The kingdom of this world is. The kingdom of God doesn't have upside down values. Our kingdom does. Because we've taken this beautiful creation that he made. A creation where we were made to be in relationship with him and with one another. And we've turned it into a dog-eat-dog world where we try to knock others down so that we can be built up. We, we make fun of people. We taunt them. We, we point out their imperfections so that we can feel better about ourselves. That doesn't sound like freedom. That sounds like slavery. And then Jesus, on the heels of that... As he's talking to the crowds, he now zeroes in on his disciples who were sitting right around him. I'm just wrapping things up right now, just a little bit longer. He turns to his disciples and he now begins to talk directly to them. These guys who have said, I'm in, I'm following you. And so he says to the men and women who are arrayed in front of him, blessed are you. Everything else is blessed are those. Now all of a sudden the language changes to blessed are you. Blessed are you when people insult you persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you in other words if you have chosen to follow me then you are no longer a citizen of the world you're now a citizen of the kingdom of heaven God is your king. The values that he values are the values that will hopefully be working out in your life. But the world around you isn't going to understand because to, to them, you are going to seem backwards and upside down. And so they're going to mock you. They're going to treat you poorly 
In some instances, they may even try to take your life to shut you up. Don't be surprised when that happens. They did it to the prophets. They've done it to me. They're going to do it to you. But he doesn't stop there. He continues to then explain to them, not only are you citizens of this kingdom, but you have also been called to be an ambassador of that kingdom to the world in which you reside. And he uses two beautiful metaphors, one of salt, the other of light. We're familiar with these, so we won't spend too much time on it. Verse 13, you're the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? They can't. It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Now, salt plays a very, salt hasn't changed in 2,000 years. Salt then and salt now was always used as a very important uh, seasoning. But it played another really integral part of society in that day and age because they did not have refrigeration. If you slaughter an animal, you got to keep the meat because you can't eat it all at once. And so what you end up doing is you pack that meat away in salt and it leaches out the extra um, water so that it preserves the, the meat from the bacteria and things from spreading. So salt was integral to society, so much so that Pliny, who was a, a Roman historian, said the two most essential things in society are salt and sunshine. That's how central it was to the well-being of society. And Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. You are essential for the well-being of this world. Not only as seasoning, as flavoring, but also, and even more so, as a preservative of people's souls. But if you don't act salty, stay salty, my friend. Oh, that sounds like fun. (laughs) Stay salty, right? If you're not salty, then what's the point of salt? Throw it out. Or to put it another way, guys, you're salt. But if you stay in the salt shaker, and you refuse to get out of the walls of this place and be salt in your schools and in your workplaces and when you're doing water aerobics. What's the point? You're useless. And you go get that knife and you start chipping away at it. Get out of the salt shaker, right? You're the salt of the earth. So be salty. In the same way, he then turns and changes the metaphor to another one that they were very familiar with, of light. Verse 14. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You don't take a light bulb, turn it on and hide it. You put it up high so that it provides light for the whole house. You are that light. It's light that God is planting in you. When you say yes to Jesus, he gives you his spirit to live within you, the same spirit that empowered Jesus throughout his ministry, the same spirit that empowered him to heal people who are hurting, to feed multitudes, the same spirit that raised him from the dead is in you when you say yes to Jesus. So this is not the church. This is a place that we gather to be equipped and inspired and encouraged to go be the church. You are the church. And when people rub shoulders with you at school or at work or wherever you happen to frequent, when you go to the, you know, the supermarket, when you go to the gym, the church is there. So be 
the light. Because if you're not shining, then what's the point? You change the bulb and you get a new bulb, right? Okay. So there are two things that really stand out for me as we have been reading through this. I always ask the question at the end of reading something, so what? Why does this matter? How does this speak into our lives right now? Two things. I want to invite the worship team to come forward because I am running out of time. And I can see the sign and I really want to show it to you. So we're going to move on. Two things. Number one. There are two kingdoms at play here and now. One is the kingdom of this world with values that you're all familiar with because you have grown up in them. You know them. It's the, way, it's the way the world works. When you go on social media, you see it play out there. When you put, turn on the news, you see those power structures and those ways of approaching other people there. Kingdom of this world, kingdom of heaven, where God's will is done. And we each need to make a decision for ourselves. Which kingdom do I choose to be a part of? Which kingdom values do I choose to reflect into my life, into my workplace? Am I going to approach life with the mindset that strength or might makes right? So therefore, I will make sure that I am the strongest, that I am in the best position, so that I can make sure that my will is done. Or do you approach life from the kingdom of heaven perspective of it is not all about me and my greatest goal is not simply to love myself and make my life the most comfortable it can be, but to be a light and an encouragement and to love others as I love myself. To to reflect the way that Jesus loved me sacrificially into the people I interact with, which means sometimes forgiving people five, six, ten times, even when they don't deserve it. Yeah, good. We don't deserve forgiveness either. Thankfully, we got it anyway. Is it, you know, are you going to approach life saying, it's all about me using strength to control the weak? Or is it about you who are meek, recognizing you have strength in and of yourself, but you choose to control your strength? so that you can actually care for other people? Is it a a life where you say, I am righteous, I'm the man, look at how many good things I do. I tithe to the church, I show up at least, you know, twice every month, I get here eh, within the first 10 minutes, you know, I'm good. Or are you one of those who recognizes, I I am a spiritually bankrupt person? Everything that I could point to and say, this is what makes me worthy of your love, God, everything has fallen woefully short. You know that, that song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me? Grace doesn't sound all that sweet until you realize just how wretched you really are. But when you do, when you realize, I don't deserve his love, then all of a sudden, and you, you hear, but it's still available to me? Well, I want some of that. I'll take a double helping, please. So the first thing we have to decide is which kingdom are we going to participate in? Which kingdom values are we going to reflect? And then secondly, if you choose to say, I choose to be a part of the kingdom of heaven, I want to be one of those who advances the kingdom purposes of my father in heaven. Then recognize that when you say that, you're not just becoming a member of the kingdom or a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You are becoming an ambassador of the kingdom in a world that may not necessarily understand why you do the things you do the way that you do them. They may not understand the choices that you make. They may deride you for it. But at the end of the day, it's worth it. 
it's worth it. So, Father God, we invite you to have your way with us. I pray for my brothers and sisters in here today as we recognize, perhaps some of us for the first time, that there are two kingdoms at play vying for our attention, vying for us to represent it and rep it. Father, would you glorify yourself in us and would you help us to be a reflection of your love, even though we're going to be imperfect, even though we are jars of clay that have absolutely no redeeming quality in ourselves, we thank you that you use us anyway. We are, we are small salt shakers. We're light bulbs. And yet you use us to season and preserve this world and to shine the light of your love Everywhere we go, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth, in this city, in this church, and in our hearts, just as it is in heaven. Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Amen. I spent a few minutes just celebrating all that God has done for us.